Hello, everyone. This is Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, for short, Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. My name is Venia, and I am actually going to be hosting a somewhat unique conversation. We only have one guest today, and I am incredibly excited because we're going to be exploring a tool, a rubric of sorts, that has really caught the eye of a lot of people here at Chaos. But before we do get into that tool, we've got a little bit of a story for you. So I'm just going to jump right into it and introduce our guest. Would you mind introducing yourself, Rob? Thanks, Vinny. I appreciate it. First of all, thrilled to be here. The podcast is great. I'm super interested in the topic of metrics and measurement in general. I know we'll get into it, but going back to earlier in my career, I did a lot of work around a methodology called Six Sigma, which is really focused on measurement of processes and looking at root cause analysis. So this whole topic is really interesting to me. So thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. So my name is Rob Underwood, Brooklyn Rob on Twitter. I am the chief development officer for Finos, and Finos is the FinTech Open Source Foundation. And so our mission is to expand the adoption and use of open source practices, tools, methodologies within financial services. And first and foremost, just historically, our focus has been capital markets. So investment banking. And so as you can probably imagine, I'm sure, while I know our focus here is going to be on metrics, I'm sure as you can imagine, there's a lot of things that we also have to think about around culture, because historically, the cultures of an investment bank and the sort of ethos and culture of open source communities may not at first seem like the most obvious match. Hopefully, we'll get into a little bit about how that's changed and why they are. But yeah, we're here to help large investment banks and other financial institutions collaborate in the open transparently using open source code and practices. And as you can, you know, probably imagine banks and financial institutions like to measure things. And so measurement and numbers tend to be something they focus on. And so we have to think a lot about how we measure things within uh, our foundation. That's kind of music to my ears as a measurement marketer, but even more so as an anthropologist. Cool. So whenever I hear there's a focus on culture before there's a focus on numbers, that just makes my little heart sing. I mean, really, at the end of the day, anything is about people and humans, right? And so, you know, I think we're here to create cultures and organizational structures that hopefully bring out the best in people and enable people to be wildly successful. And all of the other stuff is sort of on top of that. Absolutely. And I guess before we get into the tool, kind of in the name of that culture, I'd really like to know a little bit more about that. Can you delve into the culture and the environment that you built this tool in in Finos? Yeah, so I started at Finos in doing some consulting for Finos. Actually, Finos at the time was the Symphony Software Foundation. I'm happy to get into a little bit of the the history of the foundation, but as the Symphony Software Foundation was being reborn as Finos. I did consulting for about four or five months, and then I joined as the 
director of programs. I know we'll talk today a little bit about what a program means or meant to us. But one of the things I've been kind of blown away by, and I was kind of was unexpected to, to me was the degree to which my preconceptions of how developers and product managers and others within investment banks, how they would sort of behave and behave towards each other was wrong. So just as a little bit of background on me, just to provide some context to, to that comment, I did 12 and a half years of management consulting, six years at KPMG as KPMG was becoming bearing point, and then six and a half years at Deloitte in Deloitte Consulting Strategy Practice. So especially at Deloitte, just in the vertical I worked in, I worked in the TMT industry, and that included the financial data providers, some of whom are Finos members now, but organizations that are financial data providers like Bloomberg and S&P. And I had, you know, some awareness and familiarity with financial services and financial services data and financial services software development, but not necessarily at Deloitte with open source development in that context. And then between my time at Deloitte and my time really when I got involved with Finos, I did a bunch of work around ed tech and education. I was the CTO of graduate school, did a bunch of work around expanding computer science education, especially in New York City. And so I came to Finos sort of with a lot of kind of preconceptions that, oh, well, you know, it's going to be a very rigid culture, very hierarchical. How is it even possible that a developer from Goldman Sachs, you know, what would be her motivations for wanting to? work together with, you know, her counterpart or a similar, someone with a similar role at JP Morgan. Why would they do that? In just a very sort of, I imagine, frankly, a kind of a real bro culture, which I have been pleasantly surprised to really not encounter or see very much. Yeah. So from that sort of culture standpoint, I just have been pleasantly surprised at the degree to which people really want to work together. So that sort of begs the question, well, okay, so why would they want to work together? And, you know, the answer is, is that, and this is true in many industries, but especially in financial services, banks do business with each other all the time. And whether it's an IPO where, you know, several investment banks may be working together on an IPO or a big bond issuance or some other sort of deal, banks compete fiercely, but they have to work together all the time. Furthermore, they work in, it's a highly regulated industry. So whether those are European regulations or regulations in Asia or regulations in the United States or in South America, they have to conform to a set of regulations from regulators. And so they have a lot of common challenges in terms of dealing with those regulations. So there's all of these opportunities for mutualization. And I think one of the important tenets of open source, and I'd love to you know, hear your take on this too, is it's this idea of the commons, that we all have a duty and a responsibility to maintain the commons, right? So, you know, Absolutely. not to get political, get a little political, I think we all have a duty to the commons of maintaining the health of the planet, right? So if we don't have access to clean water and we don't have access to clean air and we don't have an earth 
that can sustain human life, well, that's a problem. And so we all have a duty to be good stewards of the planet, I think. Absolutely. So that's my big comment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In the marketing vertical, at least, I like to use a specific analogy. If you think about before the era of SaaS stacks and these really small business, hyper-centered tech companies who are coming up to achieve one problem before the social media era, the way that a lot of those technologies was being built was largely proprietary. And the CEO was at the bullhead of this large ship. And the idea was, we're going to produce a company that has a marketing suite that solves all your problems. And they would do everything. They'd have an email suite, a CRM, a CMS. They do everything. Customer relationships, content management, events. And by and large, the company would get strung out because it was one person trying to manage a cruise ship. And the food would be like a cruise ship. The email software had bugs, but it didn't matter. You just had to work through it. It would have all these issues and the platform wasn't specialized and you just picked your poison. And now as open source has started to permeate these proprietary SaaSes and hyper-specific schools of thought have started to grow and develop, now that's changed. And instead of having a massive Titanic that is just mediocre and doesn't end well, now we have like a naval fleet where we have a captain of a very small ship that does email marketing and he is very tightly connected with this other captain of the ship that does customer relationship management software and she is absolutely connected to this other guy that does really great events management and the SaaS stacks actually integrate and connect because they've taken that from open source and recognized that building the best thing they can with the one thing they're good at and then collaborating with the other people that are building the best thing they can with the one thing that are good at works. And it sounds to me like that's where banks have kind of taken the edge. Yeah. Started to communicate and talk about building these bridges and this infrastructure that creates common ground and allows for that collaboration to build. That's right. And so, you know, and going back to, you know, when I first got into consulting back in 2000, that's where I worked was in marketing technology and in CRM. And so back in that day, the big players were Oracle, SAP CRM, and the new kid on the block at the time was Siebel. And then, you know, a few years later, Salesforce started to come. That was really new. That was really radical, right? And Salesforce was interesting because the other three, largely speaking, I'm generalizing, but largely speaking, I'm I'm talking about the early 2000s now, sold to the CIO or the CTO. And the the Salesforce strategy at the time was, I'm just going to go right to the head of sales and sell to her or him. And that tension, which you described so well of sort of this, do I want a suite or do I want a you know, sort of a a best of breed model. That was always something that we were sort of going back and forth on. And I remember my clients at both, you know, KPMG, Bearing Point and Deloitte were always sort of balancing. But like you say, it's only really 
I won't say just now, but I'd say in the last half decade or so with the sort of APIification, if you will, of everything, that this ability, like you say, to be able to take these different parts and, and constitute them in different ways. I mean, that's what frankly makes it an interesting time to launch a startup, right? Because you can take all of these different pieces and sort of cobble them together and create something very quickly. The other thing, you know, just reflecting on what you were saying is, so one of my, I've been really blessed in my career to have some great mentors. And one of my mentors at, at KPMG Bearing Point is a guy named Tim Jones. He's now the head of global consulting and he's just amazed at what he's done with his career. He used to draw this triangle and it's, it's not a unique triangle, but the triangle was, if you can imagine, at the bottom of the triangle, so the largest portion of a triangle, so imagine that the, the wider part is at the bottom and the tip is at the top, would be the stuff that is industry agnostic. So just stuff like accounts payable, right? So how you do accounts payable, yeah, there's some degree of variation from industry to industry, but largely speaking, how you do accounts payable is going to be not all that different from industry to industry. Then the layer above it was the industry-specific but not differentiating pieces. Then only that tippy-top piece would be the part that would be the area for actual competitive differentiation in the marketplace. That's always stuck with me, and I've used it a ton. And I think that idea of sort of thinking about, wow, there's so much of this stuff that we do in common in the same way, and we all benefit if we just, you know, figure out a way to do it in a common, mutualized way is really powerful. So I love where that's going, especially in a financial sector, which I'm surprised to hear that the environment that you're coming into this financial sector for is already primed for that collaboration, already making connection and bridges between the different power players, so to speak. And I'm also surprised to find that the culture is surprisingly amenable from what I'm getting out of your conversation to change and diversity and connection. It's kind of moved away from what you initially described, I believe, as a bro culture, which is really awesome. I would just say, I mean, on that, another thing I would say is, you know, and again, regardless of how one feels about you know, and again, you know, investment banking and, and whatnot. But one of the things that I've been blown away by is when I walk into some of these investment banks is the diversity overall in these banks. When you walk in, it's incredible. You just, you see people from every country. It's just, it's a very diverse environment. It's just, I keep being struck by that when I go into these banks. You, again, I had this preconception, it can be very white, it can be very male, very bro-y. And at least what I've seen, it's, you know, you just meet people from all over the world, all sorts of different backgrounds. And now that changes a little bit when you get into the developer community. And again, we'll talk about that hopefully in a little bit. But, you know, Things are changing. You know, I mean, we live in difficult days, right? And it's easy to be dark and cynical and sort of feel like the world's collapsing. And, you know, I get there too. But, you know, there is progress being made on the diversity front and on expanding access to, and we're not there yet, definitely not there yet, but change is afoot. And, you know, a lot of these investment banks are so focused on getting 
you know, the best and brightest from wherever in the world that they just can't be concerned with that stuff. They just want the best and the brightest and the most enthusiastic and wherever folks are from or whatever, you know, their gender ID or their sexual orientation or their race or their, like, that's just kind of irrelevant. It's like, if you want to contribute, great, come and contribute. Yeah. And I guess without further ado, that kind of describes the environment that this tool uh, yeah. that we have been rather mysterious about until <laughs> yeah. now has been. Yeah. So I guess now it's time to introduce it. Sure. And, great. Let's um, do I'm that. I'm very excited. What we have here, to me, what it looks like is a tool that kind of gauges how the power users are dealing with diversity, inclusion, status, connection, and allows us to specifically select metrics that kind of tell the power users and people in charge how they're doing. That sounds about right. Yeah, let me give you some framing for the tool. So the tool that you're referring to is our, we call it our board reporting and program health check. Now, we need to provide a little bit of context that the concept of a program is something that we have gotten rid of. So we're very much, and that's why I was really excited to have this conversation because I think there's a ton to learn from you and from your community as, as we kind of go through this transition period. So it is a rubric in order to present kind of a set of criteria. We, we use three categories, target, which is sort of expected operations, at risk and intervention required. And then there's some different dimensions that we measure. So we measure diversity and viability, roadmap and resources, hygiene and operations, quality and security, and growth and adoption. And then we have specific metrics that are associated with each one of those dimensions. Now, I said that we've gotten rid of programs. So let me describe what a program is or was. So within Finos, we have approximately 42, 43 projects that are either incubating, which means they're preparing to get to a point where the code can be designated sort of ready for prime time, ready for production or active. We also have a number of archive projects, but let's just set those aside for, for now. So in the first few years, my, as I mentioned, my title was director of programs. And for the first few years, we organized those projects, those 40 projects into programs. So we grouped the projects together and we had a federated structure in our foundation governance. So the governance of our foundation is that we have a, a board. And I should also mention that we recently became part of the Linux Foundation. So we're now a directed fund. So what was a board with kind of, you know, real fiduciary responsibilities now is a governing board for the directed fund, but sort of kind of a, an operational detail. So, but we had the board. So the board sets the direction and vision as a board does. Then we obviously have our executive director, Gab, and then, you know, the other, you know, members of the leadership team who, you know, are responsible for executing on the vision and direction of the board. But critically, we had this middle layer of the program leadership and the program leadership was responsible for stewardship of the projects within those programs. Well, to fast forward, what we found in the two years was that that middle layer of governance, while it sounded great, ended up 
feeling like a little too much bureaucracy, I think. And so we've very recently moved to a new model where we're, it's just projects. So the 40 projects and, you know, then obviously we have the, the foundation leadership and then, then the board. So the metrics that we're going to talk about in the context of this rubric tool, we're very actively transitioning the use of those metrics, but they're still important metrics and they're still metrics that we are using and will continue to use. But I just wanted to provide a little bit of that context. Yeah. And for our listeners, this is definitely one of those moments where the rubric is going to be in the show notes down below. And it's definitely something you need to see to believe. It's very impressive. It seems like there's a very specific philosophy here that's focused primarily on responsibility and control over very difficult to manage things in larger companies and larger associations and larger online communities. So if you'd be willing to take a little bit of time, if you're listening to this podcast in a car, don't do it now, do it in a little bit, do it later, but go to podcast.chaos.community in order to find this episode, go into the show notes, grab the rubric, take a look at it. And looking at it, it seems like something that you can absolutely adapt into your own open source community, organization, or anything you're really affiliated with. So we definitely recommend taking a look at it. And I would like to just summarize what we're looking at here, just to make sure, because we kind of gone over it a little bit, but I want to make sure that it's all in one spot. And let me mention briefly, you said car. So as a New Yorker, let me just mention, or on the subway, or on a bicycle. (laughs) Definitely a good catch. But what we're looking at here is a table, a rubric, where on the x-axis, we have a set of criteria where we have target or meets expectations, and then at risk and intervention required. And then over on the far right, we actually have an entire column that we're probably going to spend the lion's share of discussing this tool on, which is metrics that seem very, very clearly pinpointed to answer those questions. And then on the y-axis, we have a set of desired outcomes that I assume is like the target that we're trying to get your board members to control. And that is diversity and visibility, the roadmap and the resources, hygiene and operations, quality and security, and then lastly, growth and adoption. And then across that, we just, it looks like you have developed over the course of the philosophy, what it actually means in each of those categories to be meeting the expectations or not meeting those expectations based on clear metrics. So I just wanted to make sure that we reiterated what this rubric looks like for all of our listeners on the podcast. And the thing that I'm very excited to talk about right now is what the philosophy was when you were building this, what the problem was, and how this rubric really solved that problem. So I guess my most important question is, what was the philosophy behind selecting the metrics you did? Yeah, so I view our role, and when I say our, I mean Gab, our executive director, Tasha, our incredible COO, James, our director of community, Mao, our director of infrastructure, Itana, Aaron, Al, myself, all of us who who collectively work on who are Finos, as well as all of our colleagues from Linux Foundation, as really being a bridge builder 
of cultures. And, you know, again, to something we talked about a little earlier. And so when I came to the role, I sort of put my old Deloitte hat on and said, okay, so if I were delivering this thing as a Deloitte engagement, right? If we were out billing several hundred dollars an hour and I was flying across, you know, a continent every week and we were doing a strategy engagement and I was putting together a set of KPIs for a client, what would a financial services client that I was serving at Deloitte be looking for? And what are they sort of expecting? And why I thought that was important and why I think that continues to be important is that while I, I should just say, I, I think you know, we have consulting organizations and, and service providers within our community that are within our membership, you know, there is a little bit of, if not outright competition, a sort of the question of, an implicit question at least of, well, if, I, if I'm at a bank and I need to launch a new software project, why wouldn't I go hire whomever, a, a consulting firm to go deliver this project versus going and sort of building a team to deliver this as open source? Yeah. And so part of this was thinking about this in terms of how do I put our open source projects, give them the same level of polish or structure that would be something that if somebody has to evangelize for open source within their investment bank to other people who have maybe have no idea what open source is, maybe they're not even technologists, maybe they're, they work in legal or compliance or procurement or some other area, that they can have the types of metrics, maybe not the actual metrics, but the types of rigor and metrics that they generally expect of projects for which they're hiring an external consultant or even just internal projects. So the motivation and philosophy of this was how do we start to put open source within this industry, which is highly regulated, very focused on numbers, very focused on money, very focused on measurement. How do we put open source on equal footing with other projects within the industry? So that was the animating philosophy first and foremost. And so we think a lot about the actual like atomic units of what we're measuring and then thinking about, you know, different ratios or measurement over time or month over month or quarter over quarter measurements, because that's the thing that banks look at. And so that was the thought. And, you know, and I'm, I'm probably, you know, dating myself. I'm 48, not spring chicken. But, you know, some of my background is in Six Sigma. And, you know, for those of you who don't know what Six Sigma is, you may have only heard about it. I sort of jokingly referred to it. There was a show on NBC that used to joke about, they used to call it Sigma Six because it was, NBC at the time was owned by G and uh, G was a big user of Six Sigma. But at its simplest, Six Sigma is, about, is, is all about measuring and using measurement to identify root causes of problems. Actually, a lot of the Six Sigma stuff really goes all the way back to some of the Japanese quality control techniques from the 70s and, and even before that. It was just like, how do we put open source on even footing with other types of projects? And that was, you know, in terms of the philosophy or motivation, that was really where it started. 
Absolutely. And it sounds like that philosophy has really found itself on a very solid footing, a very solid ground with this metric. So I'm really excited to ask, what are the metrics? Uh, what yes. are the yeah, sure. Let's talk about some of the dimensions. And again, I should point out, you will also see what we're describing in this program health check. You'll see that these criteria also present themselves in the criteria that we use to help evaluate projects as they move across the life cycle. Our life cycles of projects. So we actually have a new life cycle stage called formation. We have a very large project that Goldman Sachs is contributing called Alloy, which is kind of our best example of a project that's currently in formation. It's about to be transitioned into incubating once it's open source, which hopefully will be about the time this podcast comes out or maybe soon after. So we have the formation phase, which is a, hey, let's just kind of get our idea together for how we're going to open source this and maybe we'll run a pilot. But then we have this incubating stage of our life cycle and our active stage. So you'll see this sort of permeate in terms of our criteria there. So anyways, to, to your question. So the first dimension is diversity and viability. So there are a couple different dimensions to the dimension of diversity and viability. One is whether it was a program or now even a project, is we want diversity of organizations represented in the project, so in the maintainers, right? So many of our projects, really most, almost all of our projects are contributed by one organization, right? So an example, Perspective, this really interesting data visualization library built in WebAssembly contributed by JP Morgan, right? So it was already open source. They decided to contribute it into Finos. But by and large, most of their contributors, not all, but most of their contributors and all of their maintainers were JP Morgan. So for us, we're starting to look at when does the first maintainer who's not JP Morgan get added to the role, right? Because for us, it's really important to see that there's diversity of organizations in the maintainers. So that is one of the metrics. Number of, you'll see number of organizations represented on the PMC. That was the program management committee. But now as we're transitioning to projects only, we're looking at you know, what's the diversity of organizations that are represented in the project maintainer group. So that's just a really important thing to us is we want to see diversity in the maintainers from an organizational perspective. Another metric is the percent of women, people who identify as a woman, within our active participants. We have a definition of what an active participant is, basically looks at the trailing six months and some different types of activity that sort of count for active participation. We're actually starting to call that contribute. So the number of women who are part of the contribution community. Now, this is a metric which has been more difficult. So the difficulty, and I'd love to hear your take and, you know, I, I'd love to hear what other people in the community take is, do people really want to be counting? I mean, is, is that something you want to count, right? Do you, do you want an open source community to be sort of doing a head count of people who, whose gender identity is female? And that's just tricky. But nonetheless, we kept the metric there because we just wanted to say, hey, this is important to us. And I, I should mention too, we very recently started up a new diversity task force led by our former chair, Ali 
from city. And so, you know, they're looking at all of this too, but we wanted to just say, Hey, this is important to us. And so if you look at the rubric, we've given ourselves the goal of saying our target expected operations is that women represent 50% of our active participants. Now I will cut to the chase and say, we're not hitting that, but it doesn't mean that that shouldn't be a target that we aspire to and that we work towards our at risk criteria is less than 50% of the programs are now projects, active participants are members of traditionally underrepresented demographic groups, right? So that's important to us too. So, you know, I was talking earlier about the diversity that I observe in, in investment banks and when I walk in and it is tremendous. That said, within technology teams and development teams, while it's getting better, it's, you know, no different in technology teams on Wall Street than it is, frankly, out in Santa Clara, California, that, you know, it's still a lot of white male. But we still have to state, in, in my opinion, explicitly to say, hey, that's not where we want to be. We want our open source community to reflect the diversity of the overall community in which we live and work. And so we need to set these targets. And while they may seem really aggressive when you look at where we currently are within our technology teams, then you know, we need to nonetheless be working on that. I think that's also why you know, I, I mentioned earlier that you know, I, I spent some years in education. The real way, in my view, to fix this is we have to, and I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, if you're not already involved, get involved in the computer science movement to expand computer science in the United States and or around the world, wherever you're at. In the United States, there's, an, you know, there's CS for All. There's some wonderful organizations like my friend Reshma runs an organization called Girls of Code. You probably some folks are familiar with that. Black Girls Code. There's all these great organizations out there. That's really where, where we back to Six Sigma, right? If you look at the root cause, it's making sure that everybody gets a chance to be exposed to technology and computer science early in their life. And that's how we're going to fix and improve our diversity. But anyways, that's point being that we have to measure this and we have to give ourselves targets. It might feel at times uncomfortable and it might times feel like these are aggressive, but we can't sort of like back away from this. We have to like lean in and be focused on these measures because if we don't measure it, then we're not going to know if we're making any improvement. And some possibly somewhat selfish being a part of chaos. But if you're listening to this and you would like to get involved, episode 11 of this exact same podcast discusses our D&I badging group here at Chaos. So if you do want to get involved in diversity and inclusion, a really great place to start would be right there. We're always willing to have you. And that kind of wraps into the really important aspect on our side is when you're deciding, gender is a great example. How many women do you have engaging in and setting trends and building resources within your open source project? This rubric would be a really great way for you to set an idealistic goal that says we would like such and such percent and then look at the benchmark. Where are you right now? And then just put out a number. Just say, okay, we're at 13. 
5%. Okay, it's a little bit low, but let's say make a target of 20. And that rubric can constantly change and be adapted to your open source community. And it sounds like a lot of other metrics involved in this rubric are going to follow that same pattern, that same trend of just having an idealistic percentage that says, we want to be here and we are here. So let's just set a goal, set a forecast and work toward it. Does that sound right? Yeah. If you don't reach for the stars, so to speak, if you don't set aggressive targets for where you want to be, I mean, it seems to me that we would want a community where 50% or over 50% of the the community should be people whose gender identification is women, right? So like that seems to be sort of an obvious target to me. And that may not be what is currently the ratio within, you know, your average technology team, you know, whether that's in, again, Santa Clara, California, or New York, New York. But nonetheless, yeah, that's where we need to be. Just real quick for all of our listeners, I know we're kind of pushing this a little bit hard, but this really is one of those things you need to look at because we're not going to be able to go over all of the great and amazing value that this tool has to offer your communities. But there are some particularly wonderful metrics and golden nuggets involved in this rubric. So go take a look at it. Again, it's podcast.chaos.community. So what are some big highlight metrics that you're particularly excited for? So another one, and it's funny, I just this week, my friend Stephen Goldbaum, who's a executive director at Morgan Stanley, they just contributed this really interesting project called Morpher and, you know, check it out. We'll, like, I'll, we'll, we'll put the link so you can check it out. And he said to me, he said, you know, geez, we really want to make this project, you know, really successful. We want to grow the community. In fact, I'll even... I'll read you what he said. I'm looking at appropriate resourcing for ensuring a successful project. So beyond just the minimum maintenance to include things like collaboration industry opportunities, it will help to also include standard open source tasks, irrespective of Finos, like achieving public quality documentation. And so what we talked about is he was looking at how do I appropriately within Morgan Stanley plan, budget, and resource for growing an open source community around Morpher, this new project that Morgan Stanley has contributed. So in terms of metrics and back to the tool, one of the things that we encourage our programs to measure, and again, I will say this proved to be difficult, and as we make the transition to projects, you know, we'll continue to work through it, was how many full-time equivalents are dedicated to working on the previously the program or the project. So, you know, and I, I assume folks know, but, you know, full-time equivalent is just a, a way of sort of thinking about sort of just kind of separating, full-time equivalent just means like a 40-hour work week, right? So instead of just like a, a beating heart, it's just a, an abstract notion of a person. So to clarify, the metric is how many people are working at minimum 35 to 40 hours on the project? Yeah, it's full-time equivalent. So basically it's how many units if a unit is a 40 hour, it's 40 hours. If I have, let me do the calculation. So if there were four people who were spending 20 hours a week on an open source project, I have two FDs, right? So it's number of people working on the project divided by the amount of hours. So he was basically saying, well, how many FDs do you think I need? And 
So for us, you know, that's an important thing to look at, right? So if one of the banks contributes a project, we want to make sure and, you know, thankfully, we really don't have any examples of this, but what we want to avoid is we want to avoid the dump and run that some, an organization or a person contributes a project and they're like, good, I'm done. Good luck. You know, we want to see that there's going to be people who are going to stay committed to that project to being stewards of the project, to growing the community, to working on diversity, to all of those different pieces. And so for us, another metric was, okay, you know, men need to be exact, but okay, you know, asking the lead maintainer now in the case of projects, how many FDs does it feel like you have working on this? Do you have enough? Let's look at your roadmap. Do you have what you need to deliver on this roadmap? Or do you need maybe Finos's help to start to spread the word like, hey, we've got these three or four good first issues. We could use some help. We need more people to get involved. So that just level of commitment. And again, back to sort of putting open source on equal footing with other projects within an investment bank, that just goes without saying that if you're talking about a, a large project within an investment bank, you're going to know what, how, you're, how are you resourcing? Oh, hey, we're going to go after this new IPO for, we want to win the IPO for Snowflake or whatever. And how many FDs are we going to put on the pursuit to win the, you know, the Snowflake IPO? They're going to measure that, right? So we want to think about that. So that was another thing. And then we have a Boolean as well, which is just, have you published your roadmap, right? Which probably seems like, well, of course you have. Well, you know, not always, right? And so do you have a roadmap? Like, is there a roadmap on your public wiki or on your site? Can people understand that? If not, okay, well, then let's work on it. But at least let's know if it's there, right? But sometimes the metrics are really basic, just like a Boolean, you know, is there a roadmap there? But we just want to make sure that, you know, from a roadmap dimension, that projects are working to a public roadmap, that they're actively supported, they have committed resources from the firms that are participating, and, you know, that this is going to be a successful thing. Yeah. Do they have a strategic plan? Have they allocated both time, personnel, and monetary resources to achieving yeah. plans? And have they narrowed the strategy and the objectives to ensure that they're not overexpanding themselves across the projects that are involved. Exactly. Uh, Another point of criteria in here, and again, hopefully folks are looking at this, I will disclaim is a little bit more provocative. We have a part of this criteria that says no requirement exists for developers to create a separate work corporate GitHub ID. Now, further disclaimer, we have several members that do have that requirement. Those are legal compliance decisions those members have made. That's fine. But for many developers, their GitHub or GitLab or Bitbug, but you know, their contributions in GitHub are their resume, right? And they bring that resume with them from job to job, from contract to contract. And you know, the leading practice, if you will, in Silicon Valley for sure, is that you have one GitHub ID and you sort of have that GitHub ID for life. And you take all of those open source projects associated with your GitHub ID. And if you move from Google to Facebook, you don't have to go create, like you're still that same person who made those contributions. In fact, you may still be working on those same projects when you move from Google to Facebook, right? So the other thing we try to encourage, and again, for some of our members, this isn't something they can do, but we try to encourage that this philosophy of a single heartbeat, a single GitHub ID, and that you don't have to sort of be two people. One of the things that 
is a animating motivation for Finos is that it wasn't like, you know, like Finos came along and all of a sudden banks are doing open source or developers and banks. No, no, they had been doing open source development for a long time. It's just, you know, what had been happening was a developer, you know, she would use this library at work, see a fix that she needed to make, wasn't permitted to do it in her capacity as working for the investment bank. So she'd go home and at two in the morning, you know, when she was back here in Brooklyn or whatever, she'd go and do that, you know, sort of unbeknownst to her employer, fix it, and then go back to the bank the next day and then pull it into the project they were working on. We want that behavior to not happen. We want it to make it that she can comfortably, officially, in the context and construct of her job description, her day-to-day work responsibilities at the bank, at the financial data provider, what have you, be able to say, hey, I want to make this fix. I'm going to you know, fix these three lines of Haskell code. I'm going to make you know, a couple of commits. I'm going to do a pull request. And I'm going to do that within the capacity of my employment. And I'm going to be able to do that. So that's another big part that we know that people are able to do things, to participate in these communities authentically as part of their day-to-day job. We love it. But not always the case, but we love it when it's actually written into job descriptions that they're participating in these open source communities. Because then, and, and even further more, I'd say, when we know it's tied to their incentive compensation, right? So, you know, it's this is Wall Street, right? There are people, you know, the, the <laughs> money, people are, there's money involved, right? And so, <laughs> so there are bonuses involved. And so if your economic incentives aren't aligned with you participating in an open source community, then, you know, you might ask, well, if I have a choice of two tasks and one is going to further my, you know, positioning to get the bonus I'm after and one is fixing this bug, but it doesn't going to do anything for my bonus. Well, which one are you going to choose? And, you know, sometimes people are going to choose the thing that's going <laughs> to provide the economic incentive. So absolutely. This is absolutely amazing. I think that we could realistically have a series about this tool, but for the time being, we are toward the end of the podcast and there are a lot of amazing metrics on this rubric. But the most important question for us, especially at Chaos, because we focus on metrics and how to measure open source communities is adaptation of this tool. So my Mm. last question for you, just a lightning round real quick before we get into our picks, which I'll describe here in a little bit. What is the first step aside from going to podcast.chaos.community and looking at the rubric? Of course. What is the first step toward community leaders implementing and adapting this tool in their own communities? I think the first step is really figuring out ultimately what your goals are for your community before you get into metrics, right? So if your anime motivation is is that you want to increase your velocity against your roadmap, then that might lead you towards, and you just need to bang things out. You just need to get a lot done. Then you may be more focused on a smaller, leaner team to sort of crush that work and get that done. And so you want to measure your velocity of work. But if you're, by contrast, 
looking towards, well, we have a roadmap, but really more important right now is building the community around as we build the roadmap. Then maybe I want to be more focused on some of the metrics around how many contributors I have. I also think that metrics can sort of lead you in the wrong direction, right? So, you know, one of the things that we think through at Finos is, so we obviously want more projects, right? Well, that's important, right? We're a foundation. We want to demonstrate growth. We want to demonstrate to our membership that we're building a wider community. Certainly an important metric is projects. Okay. But we also want projects that are viable. This goes back to the resourcing, right? So I think another thing to think about is what are the appropriate ratios, right? So a very active debate we're having in real time within Finos, with our Linux Foundation colleagues too, is so the ratio of unique contributors as your numerator and your number of projects as your denominator, is that a useful measure? And what does that tell you? So I would argue that if your month over month growth of unique contributors divided by your number of projects is declining, then that implies that your community is getting thin. Maybe not, right? And so back to your question, I think it's really understanding what you're trying to achieve in your open source community first and foremost, because I, this goes back to my kind of consulting days. I mean, I think a mistake that any organization can make is too many metrics. So, you know, you go and you, no, no one's really going to a bookstore right now, but, it, but <laughs> metaphorically, if you go to the local independent bookstore and you go to the section and you get some books about OKRs and MBOs and KPIs, well, you know, very soon you can create this sort of dashboard and, you know, you could even draw the same conclusion just looking at this health check of like all of these metrics and measures. Well, you know, collecting the data to calculate these, I mean, there's a lot of tools out there that help with that, but even if that's overhead, that's cost, right? That's time you're not spending building your community if you're working on calculating stuff. So being really judicious, I think, in the use of metrics and being really clear on what are my goals? What are the one or two metrics or three metrics that are really going to be important to demonstrate progress you know, quarter over quarter, over year over year, and then focusing on those and not getting too caught up in too many other metrics. Really good advice. And we actually use something called the QIA process, the question, information, action process. Yeah, it's great, great. Don't even think about the information column until you have what is the question and what exactly is the action that you're going to take if that metric within expectations and outside of expectations. And once you know that, if the action doesn't really seem useful, you don't need a metric that will define that question or action. You're just asking a question that is for information's sake, just for the sake of curiosity. What is the question you're asking of the data? What is the question you're asking of the data? Great, great framing. One thing that we're going to need to do is, as we kind of close up, we have yep. one thing that we tend to do on every podcast, and these are okay. called picks. picks. Uh, so right. It can be anything. So it could be something that happened in your private or personal life that you're really, really excited about, or it could be something that's actually related to work. What is one thing that's like your guiding light? So the big question is, what is one thing that is going on in your universe that you think our listeners will learn from? Vote. Oh, wow. Yes, absolutely. Vote. That's not even just a United States thing, is it? Nope. <laughs> just everywhere. Vote. 
Vote. <laughs> vote. I love that vote. one. Make oh. a choice. Vote. Pick yeah. one. Vote. Absolutely. Vote. That's, that's honestly probably the best pick I think I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. I would definitely say for my pick, vote. <laughs> no. <laughs> definitely do that. But one other thing that I've realized here in the United States, especially in California and yep. here in Colorado where I am, been having a lot of wildfires lately. Yes. And that combined with a lot of civil unrest and uh, yep. the COVID crisis that yep. we're now, what, seven months into, there's a lot of stresses and a lot of things that we can't control necessarily. Yep. But what we can do is support the people who are on the front lines of each of those yep. things. I agree. Uh, so I would say donate, contribute. Donate, uh, contribute. Taking care of that. Yep. I would say definitely donate, definitely contribute. I think the other thing is, is that having sympathy and empathy. So, you know, I could go into my own personal circumstance, being a parent of three and doing distance learning and the struggles and challenges. But I would say, assume that everybody you meet is going through a hard time right now, that they have some real struggle, real pain, give people the benefit of the doubt, give people a wide berth, if people are irritable or annoyed by some, just give people the benefit of the doubt. I think empathy, it's a time for empathy. I think that's super important right now is that we're going through a hard time. And I would say the other thing, which I feel really passionately about is, you know, knock on wood. I was here in New York during the worst of the pandemic in April, and we seem to be getting this under control but just wear a friggin' mask. When you leave your house, put your mask on and yeah. keep your mask on. And I don't care if you're outside and walking through the Rockies, like keep your mask on because it's also a sign of solidarity. It, it says, hey, we're gonna get through this. We're in this together. This mask is a sign that we're, we're together. We're a community. We're gonna get through this. So just keep your mask on all the time. You leave the door, put your mask on. Keep it on yeah. all the time. Mask, mask, keep your mask on. Um, uh, so vote and wear a mask. Yeah. And I didn't mean to cut you off or anything like that. No, no, no. It's Um, great. I think those are two very wonderful picks, things that we can kind of learn from and kind of a little bit of a public service announcement, honestly. And one that is very much needed as a lot of people are kind of getting worn down a little bit, but this is going to be the conclusion of the podcast. Thank you everyone listening for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And if you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us at podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, this is your chaos community.